I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 94 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Deborah Golden. Deb is a U.S. cyber and strategic risk leader for Deloitte's Risk and Financial Advisory Group. In the prior six years, Deb served as a Government and Public Services, or GPS, Cyber Risk Services Leader, as well as a GPS Advisory Market Offering Leader, and the lead principal for a major federal government healthcare provider. Deb has more than 25 years of information technology experience spanning numerous industries with an in-depth focus on government and public services, life sciences and healthcare, and financial services. Deb received a bachelor's degree in finance at Virginia Tech and a master's degree in information technology at George Washington University. She serves on Virginia Tech's business information technology and master's in information technology advisory boards, is a self-proclaimed fitness junkie, and an avid traveler, and trained service dogs with the Guide Dog Foundation in her spare time. In this episode, we discuss mental health awareness, her 1, 3, 5, and 15 routine, working with clients remotely, COVID-19 cybersecurity spend, securing home networks, diversity in the cyber workplace, the Guide Dog Foundation, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today, Deb? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. And yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, We were just, again, we were just talking before we hit record on some of the challenges of working from home. How have you and your teams kind of adjusted to the, the remote workforce? You know, I think at, at this point, we're all adjusting and, and have adjusted. I think, you know, especially as we look forward, I think there's going to be some continued mix, obviously, of virtual work. And so trying to figure out how we can continue to feel collaborative and integrated and involved with both not only our clients, but our people. Um, I think we're at a good place for that. I think now it's a matter of, OK, so what's next? You know, I think people are, you know, as states continue to recover but obviously with spikes in COVID, now people are trying to pull back. You know, I think there's still a little trepidation around, um, you know, what tomorrow is going to look like. And so I think, you know, making sure we continue to have unique ways to stay connected. Um, I'm not sure about you, but I think a lot of us are also um, fatigued by the virtual um, connection, meaning having to see someone every second of every moment and, and being on, if you will, all the time. And so I think working with my teams as well to make sure they take some time to also disconnect. I mean, truly disconnect. I think there's obviously a lot of, you know, reports that have been going on around, you know, just mental health and the need to take time, even if it's five minutes, just to step away from the laptop and and the video so that um, you can actually recharge and refresh. So I think big focus on that right now, just knowing how hard and how fast everyone's been churning um, for the last several months. Yeah, you see some of the early kind of studies now, or at least some of the numbers say, wow, people are incredibly productive, but it's almost that fear of how sustainable that is. And I, you know, I had somebody on my team say, well, look, I'm off next week, but I can be available for that that call you try to schedule. I'm like, absolutely not. Like, we'll, we'll push it. We, we are not delivering babies or curing cancer. This is cybersecurity. We'll figure it out. Um, but yeah, I, I hope there's a big push, not just for the physical health that people kind of address now, but in the mental health. It, it can be, you know, in cyber, it's something that it never stops, it seems to be. There, there's, every day there's a new threat. I was just looking at some new point of sale malware. So how do you kind of keep up with the new things that are constantly coming out? 
Yeah. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. And one thing I've, you know, been talking about quite a bit around mental health and cyber, I mean, because it is always stress in the cyber workspace, right? There's always a breach. There's always an incident. There's always a need to be on. And if you think about when there is an actual breach or an incident, um, it's not just that you're always on. It's, you know, 24 hours straight. It's solving for the crime, if you will. It's looking at remediation and resilience and how to bounce back. At the same time, you're being pulled in a thousand different directions. And typically with, um, you know, an understaffed or underfunded budget, when I think about our clients that are, that are going through these situations. And so, We've been talking about uh, mental health and cyber for, for quite some time, just the, the constant on. And, and to your point, you're never really done, right? Cyber is not ever done. It's a matter of how you can build the resilience in. And obviously, with that background, with staffing shortages and, like I said, you know, funding shortages, I think it's a pretty big challenge. And then you throw on top of that you know, COVID and, and how to push things forward. I think it's an interesting dynamic, too, because a lot of workforce shifted with COVID to frontline as it should have, you know, how to, how to cure patients, how to find a virus cure, et cetera. At the same time, the adversaries are still moving at a very rapid pace, right? We know they're looking at, you know, phishing attacks and ransomware and things of that nature when perhaps clients are most vulnerable because they're racing to get to certain other answers that they need to be, you know, viable or, or even candidly just to keep businesses and, and people alive. And so, you know, it's been a challenge. Um, and I think it's something that we continue to, to talk about around, you know, burnout and thinking about how do you keep people moving in this capacity at such a pace. And, and one thing we're leveraging, you know, in addition to stopping and thinking about, you know, the mental health aspect is, is leveraging, obviously, technology to help. And so, how do you use things like AI and machine learning to work through cyber threats at a, at a quicker and faster pace so that we can find the, you know, it's not one needle in a haystack, the many needles in a haystack um, quicker so that people can be focused on the, the highest risk, most damaging, you know, cyber threats that they need to versus, you know, looking at the entire pile as opposed to just the needles. Yeah, it's funny. I, I always kind of stress that with, uh, you know, staffing things in such a way and a lot of the incident response engagements that I've, I've run where you, know, you take some of your best analysts and you throw them at the early front end kind of work, whether it's data gathering, client work. And by the time they really have to get into doing the deeper analysis, you know, they're 40 hours in and they're pretty much shot. And we have this tendency to kind of burn the candle at both ends early on. And some of our best staff tend to then be less productive or less uh, available, whatever, you know, they just are not operating at capacity. So how do you try to keep your, you know, your, your folks operating at their, their kind of peak without, you know, burning them out? Yeah. And look, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. I think I've, I've always been very upfront on physical and mental well-being and the need to um, recharge yourself. I try to lead by example. Um, but it's also, I think it's a challenge because I, I don't know about your thinking here, but I don't, this is going to sound weird. Um, I don't believe in work-life balance, not because there doesn't need to be a balance, but I just don't know that it's ever perfectly, quote unquote, perfectly balanced, sure. right? Um, and so I, I always think about, you know, what does that mean? It means sometimes, look, work is going to take over and be 80% and the balance is going to have to be 20%. Or sometimes the, the life part's going to be 80% and the work part's going to be 20%. And so it's critical to find the, the harmony in the two. And I like that much better than balance because I think there's a lot of pressure on, ba on the word balance because balance means, in my mind at least, it's a 50-50 split. And I just, I don't know that that's realistic. And I think sometimes that's what causes the anxiety because you're wondering, 
I, I've done too much of X today and it's not equating to Y. And so one thing I, I challenge teams to do, and it, and it seems to be eye-opening when I, when I talk about it is what I call the one, three, five, 15. So I have my team members literally write on, well, we used to write it on whiteboards when we were all in offices together, but now on you know paper post-its mm-hmm. or your laptop, the things you can do in one minute, three minutes, five minutes and 15 minutes that would cause your brain to recharge. And it's amazing the number of things you can do in a minute to recharge, whether that's five deep breaths, whether that's calling someone to tell them that you love them, whether that's listening to a funny video, there's a lot of things that can be done because normally what do people say? I don't have time. I don't have time to step away from my desk. I don't have time to put myself first. I don't have time to think about something other than X or Y. And so when you actually put it into the context of one, three, five, and 15, you realize actually that you can actually get a lot of stuff done to help you calm your brain or become centered or refresh in the moment more so than you ever thought you could. And so that's just one example that I've been able to, to work with teams and, and talk with my colleagues and even my clients because we always seem to be, excuse me, always on and overworked. And so if we put it in that context of time can be a minute, we can always find a minute. Yeah, we, you know, times that when I've always told my folks is, look, it's, it's the one constant, you know, you have 24 hours a day, it's what you do with it. (laughs) And not every hour of the day is different. There's a little bit of arbitrage. Sometimes in the morning, you might be more productive at maybe something deep, or that's where you work on, you know, successive tasks in a row. But I'm like, find that balance and kind of strive towards it. But there's this idea that, you know, you you show up at nine o'clock, you work until 9pm. And there's this constant of productivity just doesn't seem to exist. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I've uh, I was I'm speaking at the Wild West Hacking Fest, um, which is now just found out went virtual that uh, John Strands puts on with his team. But you know, one of the things I said to kind of I danced around the issue with them. I'm like, you know, I'd really love to do something on like mental health, mental health awareness, and everybody was like, yes, please. Like it, it seems to be this <laughs> we don't talk about it enough. And I'm always yeah. curious to talking to, to other leaders. You know, why do you think it's developed such a stigma, particularly in technology, but I, I would say almost especially with cybersecurity, where you know people just think like they can't let their guard down for a second. Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's just becoming how to have mental health be part of the general conversation. And again, I look at it when somebody says they have a headache or a heartache or when they've got you know lung issues. I mean, we go to the doctors and we work on that and, and there's no shame in that. Right. I think when we start to talk about mental health, people do still have a public you know stigma to that. And so I think having more open, honest conversation. I lead by being authentic and transparent. And I think that's the only way that we're gonna make this just the same. If you're feeling stressed or you're feeling depressed, it's no different than, you know what, I'm having challenges with my blood pressure or I need to go to a cardiologist. But yet we we publicly you know, put the stigma on mental health must mean there's a failure um, versus looking at mental health and saying, you know, our brain needs to be functioning in a way that we can all be supportive of and we should help one another when times are tough. And I, and I don't know that we ever stop long enough to say, you know, how can I support you today and what can I do to help you? And I think people become anxious because if we don't talk about it in the mainstream, then that's where the the shame, I think, comes along with it. And so, you know, I'm really working towards what I call, we, we do a, a lot of what I call authentic self-series where you know, bring in a number of people to literally just talk about themselves and the situations they've gone through. And, and what you realize, first of all, is the number of things that, that any one human being is going through, you know, 12 other people may share. And we've also uncovered 
some people who literally, you know, they, they are the one in a million, but they're sharing their story so that you realize that all of us are human. And I think trying to add that human element, as well as being transparent about the mental aspect of it, will carry us even further than we can't talk about this subject or we shouldn't or it's bad or it's shameful. Like I said, nobody questions when you say you have to go to a cardiologist to check on your heart. We shouldn't question the fact that we want to talk about mental health or go to a therapist or see a doctor when we've got challenges going on with anxiety or depression. Exactly. It's funny. I almost say, you know, it's it, it. There's almost a stigma of being, you know, a little bit. Oh, you know, we're being overly sensitive, or it's being too altruistic, and there's some kind of weakness with it. And I'm saying, you know, there, there's a balance there too. When we talk about balance, but there's a capitalistic balance to me too. I want my people coming back at their their peak performance. Like if they they say, hey, look, I just need to take a day. I'm like, well, I'd rather you have a half day today and a full day tomorrow than like three half days. Um, That's right. You know, and it it it's equates to better output. Um, but talk to me a little bit about your, your team that you're leading now. So you're at Deloitte. What does a typical day for Deb look like? <laughs> I don't know that I, right now the typical day yeah. is I am actually on, I am on video conferences most of the day. Mm. Um, I, I do in practicing what I preach, I carve out at least 30 minutes, um, to go to ride my bike or get outside and walk the dogs. And so I do try to stick true to that, um, at least five days a week, um, including the weekends, obviously, but I try to do that at least so that I've got that break for myself as well. But lately it's, it's been on, it's, it's on lots of calls like everyone else. Um, but really focused on, you know, again, the things that I, I think I care most about when I think about is, is our people, um, and our clients. I mean, at the end of the day, looking at how we can transform our business, particularly given, you know, obviously post COVID world, um, we need to, we, we, we all need to transform our businesses, not just ourselves, but how our clients are transforming businesses. I and mean, we have some clients who are entering brand new businesses that they've never entered before because of the way that they operated pre COVID and looking at that as a huge opportunity. I mean, I, if I can look at the silver lining, it has to be that COVID is forcing us to have digital disruption and innovation in such a quick pace that we've never had before that I, I find incredibly um, positive and, and looking at that as an opportunity for us to be able to build and grow. So so most of my day is spent on looking at you know innovation and capability and how we can further our, our efforts from a, from a client standpoint and from a solution standpoint. And then the rest of it really is, you know, focused on our people. And so whether that's, you know, helping them, you know, look at pricing or solutioning for a client or, you know, personal situations or professional situations, Um, you know, how do we build and continue to grow? How do we evolve? How do we deal with difficult things? That's the other thing, you know, I like to believe I have a very open door policy, you know, just brainstorming and not being afraid to say, look, I, I don't know, but I'll sit here and, you know, listen for, you know, however long we need to, to help brainstorm. And I think, the more brainstorming and the more collaboration we can do, I think is only gonna not only further ourselves, further me, um, it allows me to learn at the same time, it allows each other to, to challenge one another in a, in a very positive and collegial manner. And so, look, every day is not the same. Um, I wish I could say it was, but candidly, if I said it was, I'd probably be bored. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've been here now over 25 years um, and, and candidly, it, it's the, I find the joy in it is the fact that every day is different. Um, before it just used to be planes, trains, and automobiles and, and different locations. Um, and now the excitement and the energy is still the same about the opportunity and the difference that every day brings. Yeah. And maybe if you could talk, you know, not necessarily specifics on clients work, but you know, any, any industries that you work with um, and 
you know, kind of maybe a two-part question on that is, you know, if there's particular industries that you, that you do a lot of work with, but have you found that being remote is harder to have those risk conversations? One of the things I found is, you know, being in the room with the C-suite, directors of IT, and kind of everybody in that round table and being able to look them in the eye, read body language was incredibly helpful. And it's certainly now a challenge and, you know, with security, you have to adapt and overcome, but how, you know, is it, have you experienced the same of that based on your clients? And I mean, is there a commonality, I guess? You know, it's been interesting because I think if, um, candidly, if, if some were to stay home and some were to be in the office out of the gate, that, that probably would have been a bigger challenge. But again, I think because everybody inside of about three weeks, all of a sudden was working virtually, everybody had to figure it out. So it wasn't just, you know, we were trying to figure it out. Our clients were trying to figure it out. And candidly, the industries varied, right? Like some went quicker than others. But, but at the end of the day, like I said, at three weeks, five weeks, um, everybody was pretty much virtual a handful that were still in our you know kind of our classified environments obviously we're still working um on site but for the most part all industries clients and and deloitte themselves were were off-site other than a, a handful of exceptions and so i think the the challenges of personal in integration like seeing someone to your point i i definitely think is still a challenge i think we all have been working towards how to overcome that um, again, I don't know about you. I, I miss being with people. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I, I genuinely just like, you know, miss seeing people and having that dialogue. And I feel like part of the challenge isn't so much that we're virtual because we're seeing each other, obviously through video. I think the challenge is we don't have the 10 minute water cooler talk. We don't have the 10 minutes between the meetings. We don't have the, we'll start the meeting in a couple of minutes while everybody's, you know, chit chatting and, and seeing each other. And so we don't have that time, which I think that's, you know, the part where if you're going to see an impact on relationships or an impact on, you know, the ability to collaborate, it's that time to me that is causing a bigger challenge because we're all going meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. We're not engaging. And, and I don't even want to say it's small talk because a lot of times it's that small talk that led to the bigger items that you wanted, like, hey, I'll catch up with you before the meeting because we've got to talk about X or, hey, how was your weekend? And and then that led to, oh, I was you know working on a proposal. Oh, well, what, can I help you? Right. I think that's the part that, in my opinion, is is missing the most. And I'm not sure how we get that back in a totally virtual world. Yeah, I I, I it's. You know, I've uh, recently started with a new organization and, you know, kind of going in new where I was the guy that if, if, I, if I was starting somewhere new, even if I was, I've always been a consultant around the road or doing something, I'd make it a point to go to whatever my local office was, get to know people, see people, just yeah. get that vibe. And now it's, uh, it's trying to do it on Slack, which is, which is working, but there's <laughs> levels of efficacy that work within that, you know, there's, it's really hard for, to replace that human element. Um, and I guess, you know, some of my fears, you know, does, does that impact people's, you know, thoughts about cybersecurity, you know, when you, when you do be able to, you know, again, there's something about meeting with somebody and talking to them about these levels of risk that is, it, it just has more meaning when you're in person. Yeah, no, again, I, I think when we when we miss out on the water cooler talk, there's a lot more interaction and things that we don't realize that we're missing out. Even when I, even personally, I mean, I, I was walking the dogs this past weekend and it was like, I call it stoop talk, right? I, I see my friends on the stoop and like, you know, we're talking six feet away from each other and you just pause for a moment and you're like, I realize how much I miss just stoop talk. Like I just being able to, to be out outside and talking with one another that we normally on a, you know, pre-COVID day would have seen each other 
like two or three times over the weekend that, you know, we don't, we don't see anybody anymore. And so I, I think there's like the dynamic of the personal side of our client relationships and obviously our personal relationships that, that I feel are going to be the harder to figure out how we sustain them. Yeah. And one of the things that's coming out, you know, it was certainly that early, like, let's say January, February, March, oh my God, what are, you know, what's going to happen? You know, obviously a lot of businesses have been impacted, uh, particularly just, you know, small business and, and smaller enterprises and large enterprises um, financially. But the concern was for me, you know, geez, are, are clients going to start looking at budgets and saying, you know, here's here's an area to cut. You know, we don't understand yeah. cybersecurity. Let's start redlining those, those cost centers. Have you seen that uh, play out? And some of the stuff I've seen is actually an increase. Yeah, you know, I, I have seen an increase as well. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I guess I've seen both. And some of it is, by the way, as we all know, cyber was already stretched thin from a budget. And as yeah. I mentioned before, a staff perspective. And so that was already an area that people were cutting. I, I am seeing people, you know, some of our clients still continuing to refine and cut. But I am seeing, to your point, people also saying, well, we know this is an opportune time for our adversaries and we need to strengthen, especially when you think about like I said in the example before, people who, you know, maybe clients before that were totally brick and mortar that now have to go to 100% e-commerce, they've never been e-commerce, you know, how do they go to e-commerce? And obviously there's a huge cyber component of that. And so it's a very different business model for some of our clients that those individuals, obviously, and those clients are increasing their spend quite substantively that, you know, we want to obviously be there to help support. But when you think about that, that's that's just not a, a, a different business model for them. That's like completely rethinking how you look at cyber. And so, you know, again, I, I've, we've seen both ends of the spectrum. Um, and so I'm, I guess it's a, it's a good thing from, like I said, an innovation and change of business process perspective. I think though, that we still are not seeing the height of the adversary impact for COVID, right? Because obviously phishing is up and ransomware is up. But when you think about, again, the digital transformation that's occurred in weeks slash months versus months and years, the ability for adversaries to lay the groundwork now for all the holes that are happening, for all the quickness decisions that are being making, for all the controls that aren't 100% in place, I think we're gonna, we've got months and years to come of looking at the adversaries taking advantage of that, that we've, we, we can't even yet fathom where that is going to be. And so if we continue to see shrinkages in budgets and staff, it's only going to continue to pull at the, at, the, at the fringes, if you will, and give the adversary the one up again. Yeah. I mean, if you think of, you know, the average dwell time that comes out every year and all the variety of reports is still, you know, it's anywhere from, say, you know, two to four months um, when attackers can be laying low before they're, they're first detected. And we're still really early into this. And with folks not being in offices, there might be, you know, now resources are being diverted to just even standing up a cloud infrastructure, they might not even think about legacy stuff that's still sitting on-prem that you know, might not be getting the care and feeding. It's It could be something where we, we actually see a spike, you know, no pun intended, but, you know, down down the road with, with COVID. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And with that, you know, are there particular technologies that you see, you know, as, as companies are going through transformative stages under the gun with a disruptive workforce, are there particular technologies you think that they're struggling with as far as adopting or integrating? No, I mean, I don't know that there's anything specific. I mean, I, you know, I keep saying it's back to basics. It's like cyber hygiene 101. I mean, it's the focus on things like privileged access. It's focus on things like identity management and provisioning. It's focused on how do you handle remote access, right? And so when you think about um, 
the things that we were would suggest and that you're seeing, it literally is a back to basics. It's the fact though that the transformation and the other decisions that were made were made so quickly. I don't know that anybody's keeping a full, you know, journal, if you will, of all the changes and decisions that they've made over the last four months to know if their security control baseline is even the same. I would argue that it's likely changed and that they need to really go back and look at that baseline to then say, okay, as my risk profile changed, because a risk profile could have changed in the example I gave before, they could now be, you know, in e-commerce, that whole risk profile has changed. Do you actually understand where your quote unquote crown jewels are sitting? And then are they adequately protected from a security baseline perspective? I think there needs to be some of that basic questioning and conversation um, before it comes down to let's just keep slapping technology in. I mean, that that service certainly is going to help solve some of the problems. But I think we're seeing, again, just broader challenges on on some of the basic capabilities around, like I said, privilege access management, identity management, security operations centers, threat intelligence, et cetera. None of those are new, um, but they're just things that are continuing to evolve based on these decisions that are being made. Yeah. I mean, I would even say, you know, simple things like asset control, you know, all of a sudden where you have people now using their home networks um, and plugging in work laptops and may or may not be VPN. And there could be a lot of risk of data going there and being touched, you know, by, by all these other devices are, are there concerns, you know, and I've heard people say, well, you know, geez, you know, on people's home networks have all these IoT or other types of things. Do you think there's particular concerns on home networks that if I'm a, a CIO or CISO that I should be saying, geez, you know, I should be a little bit worried about what my now remote employees are plugging into? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Because, I mean, not only are they plugging into it, their their kids, their families. I mean, if, if they don't have a secure network, their neighbors. I mean, like anybody could be plugging into their environment. And I think the other thing to ask is, do you do your corporate policies actually have a stance on that? And what we're finding too is some companies don't even have policy on that because 100% of the company was always working inside the four walls. And so, you know, how do you then enact not just policy, but education, right? How do you impact, again, phishing is not anything that's new, but the education to the employees, stop clicking the links that say COVID or stop clicking the links that say, you know, a virus has been found or for, you know, masks and and protection, protective equipment. And so some of it is also just, like I said, education around what not to do now that you've gotten a higher risk by plugging in potentially to your home network. And so I think there's a combination of things that that people need to be thinking about to make sure they're truly honed in on the risk, particularly if they're, you know, looking at sensitive information or they're traversing different types of your point data. Are they are they able to download it in certain places that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to do before? And so what types of data encryption does the organization have in place to make sure that they're protecting sensitive data? And, and with that, too, you know, when you think about some of the you know, again, not not every technology problem needs a technology solution, but there's, <laughs> it's it's hard for technologists not to gravitate towards it a little bit. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I would be, you know, <clears throat> user education training and just the, the the basics. But as we look forward with some of the newer technologies, whether it be, you know, the the, the latest buzzwords of AI, ML, you know, machine learning or machine assisted learning, are there things that have you know kind of been bubbling, so to speak, or do they have a, a, a more needed place or maybe an accelerated growth ability now that we're kind of in this new world? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely an accelerated growth. I mean, I think even when you think of, you know, training, you know, how many times have you seen, you know, don't click this link and yet people click the link. But I think also technology is evolving, right? Because now 
phishing schemes can be in photos and ransomware can be now gone through very simplistic manners. And so the adversaries are continuing to evolve their methods. We need to continue to evolve ours. I mean, I, I, I say often that the adversary can try a thousand times and only needs to be right once. We need to be right a thousand times. Right. And so in order to do that, we need to be running at a pace that's equivalent to the adversaries. And we're not. We, we, we just can't possibly keep up. And so I do think that the evolution of technology needs to evolve to help us in this race. Um, because, again, like I said, the adversaries can be wrong all the time. They're looking for the one chance that they get and they can keep trying and trying and trying. You know, we're scattered doing a thousand different things, being right a thousand times. And the one time we're not, obviously, that that's the, the one that's going to be the challenge. And so I think having some greater evolution on these technologies, on advanced learning, leveraging machine learning, et cetera, I think will only continue to help us further the game. Are there any, you know, any particular one of those that you think is is maybe the, you know, kind of leader in that pack of something that can really stand out? I mean, I think just broadly speaking, machine learning is going to be one uh, advanced advanced thinking, if you will, in that capacity, be only because of the sheer amount of information we're also now talking about. Because now that we've also all gone virtual, the data is exponential. So yeah. the footprints that we've created are now exponentially larger. So not only is the infrastructure larger, but the data that we're producing is now larger outside of a controlled environment. And so for me, Machine learning and footprinting has to be fundamental because, again, with the exponential growth of data, like I, people can't sift through that. I mean, you can't assume even regular computing could sift through that. And so how do we get it more anomaly-based, risk-based profiling and making assumptions to learn from that based on decisions and using machine learning there? To me, that has to be a way of the, of the future. And again, we've seen some of it to date. It's not as highly used as I think it needs to be for us to really get, uh, you know, a jump on the game. Definitely. You know, in, and when you do look at a lot of the things that are coming up, you know, and it's kind of a question I posed to a couple of people, you know, we're crazy year, but we also have an election year and we've known that there's been um, issues with electronic voting and, or potentials for electronic voting, but other things that have been, you know, foreign state sponsored actions against the U S electoral system. Are there, th are there concerns that you have around that, you know, going into the next four to five months? Because, yeah, we're, we're you know, we kind of have our eye off the ball a little bit on that. Is there concerns that you see for the remainder of the year when it comes to that space? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always, I mean, look, there's always concerns. I think whether, again, whether we were in any industry, if, if there was something going on, right, we're, we're always heightened in terms of the amount of potential attacks that may happen. I, I think we are... Um, seeing similar concerns come forward this year um, in the election year. And so I think, you know, when you look at how are states prepared, particularly when you think about a lot of the legacy applications that they have in legacy systems, again, I bring it back to kind of the back to the basics. Like what are we, what, what do we deem as quote unquote crown jewels, crown applications? How are they being secured? And then making sure that when you've got any large amount of individuals hitting on any one system, you know, how are we looking at that from a threat perspective? And I think that's the other thing just broadly as well that we should be um, focused on is leveraging threat intelligence to also help us get to the, the needle in the haystack much quicker, right? So instead of everything doesn't have the same level of, of urgency or the same level of risk profile, how do we really get to those high risks 
very quickly using threat intelligence from multiple sources to be able to then pinpoint where we need to focus versus treating every one threat as the same level of risk. Because that, that, that obviously is going to you know, just compound the issue and not help us get to those needles in the haystack quicker. Yeah. And I'm going to throw you a softball on this one a little bit, but I mean, obviously you have a good, good business background as far as uh, schooling and, and just in, in general, <laughs> but how often does, you know, in a sense, talking in these business terms about what's critical to organizations becomes really the driving part of the conversation. It, mostly, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm also a techie at heart. I mean, I can <laughs> I can code with the best of them. I mean, that's I mean, I, I have a technology and a business background. But um, and it's it's funny that you actually asked that. I've I've had a number of people over the years actually compliment me on the ability to talk about technology and cyber in a very business savvy way. And I and I think it's because mainly, um, while our buyers certainly are the CISOs and the CIOs, and we've got obviously all the way down to network engineers. And so again, I can go toe to toe with the network engineer as well too. I mean, I'm happy to talk tech talk, but I think in order to build through, particularly when we think about these transformation initiatives, when we think about the impact holistically, when we think about how cyber has evolved, cyber is actually now more critical to the business than it used to be. It used to just be a standalone thing, right? You, you get cyber, you worry about it. Now, when you look at the CFO or the chief risk officer, or the chief marketing officer. Um, and some may say, well, why is the chief marketing officer, you know, so critical to cyber? Well, you know, they've got a lot of, when you think of consumer applications that are dealing with end users, I mean, and all the data and brand information that you think about, there's a huge cybersecurity and data portion to that, that if it gets, you know, at all hurt from an adversary, it's the, the CMO that's most worried about that because that's their, you know, position, that's their business unit. And so, I think because cyber has evolved so much and technology has evolved so much, the ability to talk about cyber in the in the person's area of interest has become very critical versus talking about it just in the terms of cyber. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the CMO. I, and one of the engagers was working on doing tabletop exercises after I designed an IR plan for them. You know, the the marketing person's like, I don't understand why I'm here. This doesn't impact me. <laughs> and within, I think the first half of the first tabletop we said okay now we have to kick off the you know public notification aspect of this and you know 12 people in the room turn to him like what are you going to do and he's like oh crap this does impact me <laughs> and it's well, uh, right. you know it's, it's putting it in their terms saying oh wow yeah it's it, you know nobody cares until it's it's kind of on their plate uh but i get think I, I hope and i'm starting to see is more organizations realizing and you know it's kind of cliche to say but cybersecurity is a team sport it has to happen in the board boardroom where everybody has some shared accountability yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things too, you know, certainly seeing, um, you know, just because it's it's somewhat topical, but you know, diversity is you know been of a you know from what I've seen a little bit of a challenge in technology in uh, technology and security when we look at the makeup of a lot of the folks that we have on there. And when we talk about skill shortages, you know, I've certainly kind of been a little bit more introspective on saying, geez, you know, are there things that are becoming cultural inhibitors to getting the best talent in because we've kind of set it up to be somewhat of a homogenistic white male kind of world for so many years. But, you know, obviously being in a leadership position as a woman, have you, have you started to see that change and, and where are some areas that could be better? Yeah. And I mean, it's certainly, it's, it's something that, you know, I continue to, to fight for and be, be quite vocal about um, as it relates to, you know, how we can, it's, it's how we can demand a change in, in culture. And again, I, I, I am very optimistic, even though obviously we have, we have a ton of challenges to work through and I'm not naive to those challenges, but I look at the opportunity to change culture to me is, is fascinating and how we can 
do things better. Because candidly, we can. I can say we've done lots of great things and to try and further the ball. But there's still, I think, so much more we can do. And, and some of it, I mean, I, I've been, you know, pushing through it, a lot of it over the last several years. I mean, it's everything from changing how we write job specs, um, you know, to how we look at performance management, to how we look at um, allyship and sponsorship. Um, and if you look at the dynamics of why it's so important to do those things, to be able to pull and promote and to collaborate and to bring those different types of thinking to the table, in my opinion, is imperative. So when you think about, particularly cyber, how complex the challenges are we're often trying to solve, they're massive puzzles, right? It's not just like, oh, hey, we, we found an adversary. We're going to solve it today. I mean, it's a lot of things that we need to think about. It's the policy. It's the functional side. It's the technical side. It's the coding piece. It's the actual coming up with the problem solving. And I do firmly believe that the more diverse thought that we have at the table to solve them will really cause us to be more creative and opportunistic and innovating how we look at cyber. I think that structurally and organizationally, not not Deloitte, but at large, um, you know, that had been focused in a very specific place for a long time. And I just think that that was detrimental to our ability to grow faster, quicker, better. And so I've, you know, challenged myself and my teams over the years and will continue to do this going forward that we have that level of diversity and, and inclusion, but we also build the pillars that help support everyone, right? And those are the things, like I said, performance management, support, allyship, sponsorship. Um, there's a lot of things that if we're purposeful, we can actually impact change. If we just expect them to change on their own, we're not gonna impact change. And so being purposeful in what we set out to do and the milestones we look to achieve, I think will help us move the needle on changing culture. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure you've seen it on the consulting side too. It's, uh, you know, when I started technology and cyber, you know, decades ago, I was selling to somebody who looked like me, another white guy sitting across the table. Uh, that's changed. You know, for me, uh, stacking my sales team or a bunch of people that just look like me, sound like me, act like me, think like me, it's not very helpful if my um, potential client or customer has a different background, a different skin color, a different way of thinking. And I want to be able to understand where they're coming from. And I'm finding that, again, it's it's not just altruistic. It's great. You can kind of have your cake and eat it too, that if you have a more inclusive workplace with diversity, but you're probably going to do better capitalistically as well, because you're going to connect with more people. Yeah, no, I, I again, couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. And I think, like I said, we have to be purposeful. And it comes down, I mean, you, in your example, you have to be purposeful then of how you source, of how you staff, of how you team, right? Because those decisions can be actionable. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard, you know, of late is, you know, well, Deb, what are we going to action? You know, and and I don't I don't think I can do so. I've heard this from a couple of my colleagues. Like, I don't know what I can do to, to help an impact. And when you think about, staffing, something as simple as staffing, you can have an impact by being purposeful and conscious of your staffing. And when you think about the many dynamics, all these steps are going to help us change the narrative. Um, and they need to change the narrative. And if we're not purposeful and actionable, we're, we're like I said, we, we can't hope to get there because that's not going to be what gets us there. I want everyone's passion, though, to continue to rise because this is going to be a continued journey, right? This is not going to be solved today. It was not solved yesterday um, and it's not going to be solved tomorrow, but in order for it to get progressively better, I do think if we can be transparent about the decisions we're making and be purposeful in setting those boundaries, I'm again, cautiously optimistic um, that we'll be able to make some changes. Yeah. And one of the things that 
I like to talk to other security leaders about is, you know, everybody seems to have this common trend of, you know, at a certain point you start giving back in some form or another, there, there's something that you put some charitable, charitable time into. And one of the things mm-hmm. I was reading in your bio is it's doing stuff with surface dogs with the guide, the guide dog <laughs> foundation. Kind of tell us how that started and, and what that's about. Yeah. And I, it's a great, it brings, obviously I'm smiling. You can't see that, but I'm smiling. <laughs> I can <hear> um, it. <laughs> it gives me great joy. I mean, I, I have always wanted to find ways to give back and I, and I feel like I do that throughout the community and so forth, but I have a huge passion for dogs um, and getting to know a lot of veterans over the years, um, you know, and just how much veterans have given for our country and, and for our freedom, um, you know, really trying to figure out what I could do to help give back to so many people who have, you know, given their lives um, for our freedom. And so I, I started researching and um, have to pound the, the, the Guide Dog Foundation. And um, I got my first dog, Cedar. Um, I've had a number of dogs um, since then, but basically I have the dogs from seven weeks old till about 14 months old. Um, and then they go for, I go for, they go for college training up in New York. Um, and then they ultimately get placed um, with either a veteran or, or a blind client um, to help them lead, lead better, better lives. And to be honest with you, when I when I had my first dog, Cedar, um, everybody always asked, like, how could you give up the dog? And I'm a dog person. I love people. But I'll tell you how is I, I'm afforded the opportunity to go to the graduation from college. And when I go to the graduation ceremony, um, I get to meet the, the person that was placed with the dog. And for two hours, um, I, I listen to their journey and their challenges and just see the light that these dogs provide um, these individuals. And and candidly, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. As hard as it is to say goodbye to the dogs um, when, when I'm done with my part of their training, um, to see the light that others gain from these dogs who basically give them give them freedom. It gives them freedom for, for some of the clients I've talked to. It gives them freedom to walk outside their house that they've never been able to walk outside of to two people who had trouble walking down the street when a trash truck came by to now be able to do that with some sense of calm to even just be able to calm their, their minds um, from a mental health aspect to tie back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, I, I left that first graduation ceremony. I literally picked up the phone. I called my dad and I said, I changed a life today. And to have that feeling and to be able to give back, I'll, I will keep doing the puppies and the dogs uh, as long as I can. And, and the other thing I've grown is I've learned so much, even just about myself and others with the dogs. I mean, the dogs come with me, planes, trains, and automobiles. They come to Deloitte meetings. They come to client meetings. Um, It's just a great way for people also to come together and to actually relax for a split second. Um, and I've also learned other things. Some people who have had challenges with service dogs, you know, how can I help them and just connecting dots with other service dog um, agencies. I've had people who uh, actually I had a, a story, interesting story once where a, a woman had come into my office and she was deathly afraid of dogs due to a childhood incident. And she's like, Deb, I see you with these dogs and they're so great. And they just sit there and they they listen to you. And she goes, I'm trying to get over my fear of dogs because I have a child who, who wants a puppy. And I said, what can I do? And she said, can I just sit in your office with you for an hour? And I said, you absolutely. By the end of the hour, she had moved over to the dog and was petting the dog. And, and just to know that 
that kind of help and support can be there as well for others. Um, to me, like I said, has really just been also, you know, uplifting to me in terms of the, the changes and again, the impacts that you can have on others with, without even actually knowing as well as the impact on myself, which like I said, I, I never would have, I, I never would have thought going into this. And now that I'm on my second full-time dog, Todd, but my seventh dog total, um, like I said, I'll keep raising, raising more dogs as long as I can. Yeah. I, I've grown up with dogs and it's, it's amazing how much the joy they can bring you. They're just, they're just, they're great little lovable creatures. And there was a quote I heard a couple of years ago that stuck with me that, you know, be the person that your dog thinks you are, you know, you kind of, <laughs> just kind of want it. Like whenever you're having a bad day or you're about to like take somebody's head off in an email, just go, you know what, what would my dog think? And it, it's a funny, it's kind of a goofy thing to think, but it's like, you know, it helps kind of center you a little bit saying, you know, this, this little dog with eye looks at you says, Hey, I, I expect the best out of you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You, and you, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's also amazing how many people looked for, I mean, I always joke, like nobody ever looks forward to seeing me anymore. They look forward to seeing the dogs, which right. is totally fine. Um, but like when we would have meetings and again, we'd be on planes, trains, automobiles, in conference rooms with clients, with Deloitte folks. I mean, people get, you know, excited because again, it's back to, can I just, I mean, I would have people who literally like, can I just pet the dog for a little bit? You know, I'm, I'm stressed out. I had a tough day or, hey, Deb, can I go walk the dog because I could use the break in the office? And so I just think being able to also have that genuine break because dogs just want to be loved. I mean, they literally just want to be loved. And so if you know they're not expecting anything else other than a pat on the head and a walk outside and some food, um, it, it's really a great way to, like I said, also just give back to my, my colleagues and friends and, and family as well. That is something, again, I would have never expected. That's awesome, Deb. So where can people find you online? Um, so they can find me online at Golden Hokey. So G-O, the number one, D-E-N-H-O-K-I-E. I'm a proud Virginia Tech alumni. That's the that's the reason yeah. for the Hokey. <laughs> for those of you who don't know what a Hokey is, um, it's our Virginia Tech mascot. So um, find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, all with the same handle. Awesome. I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes so people can uh, can find you. That sounds great. I really do appreciate the time today. No, Deb, thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.